Welcome to Bible Worm. We're on hiatus until September 2021, but this summer we're replaying our 2020 series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls. This week, enjoy our episode on Lamentations 1 and 2 from June 14th, 2020. Happy listening, and see you in September. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Hello and welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. I'm joined this and every week by my friend and colleague, Dr. Amy Robertson, biblical scholar and director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Chadash in Atlanta. Yes, Amy has a new position. Congratulations, friend. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text both as scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we continue our summer series on the forgotten books of the Bible with Lamentations 1, 8-22 and 2, 10-22. Written in the wake of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BCE, Lamentations presents the community's response to trauma given in multiple voices. This week, we look at the voice of the funeral singer, a bystander who has witnessed the trauma but not experienced it, and daughter Zion, the personified city of Jerusalem, who has experienced trauma and humiliation in her body. We talk about the role of protest in faith, the urgency of speaking truth before power, and the theological imperative to challenge God. We also think about the role of allies who can recognize the pain of the traumatized, share in their sorrow, and encourage them to use their voices. This, friends, is a text for our time. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am doing pretty well. We've got an intense text today. We do, for sure. Yes, to go from mm-hmm. Ecclesiastes, which is depressing in one kind of a way, to Lamentations, which, I mean, the first read of Lamentations anyway is pretty depressing. I think there's a lot that's not depressing that one can get from this book, but the just the, you know, the content of the book itself is pretty stark. It's written at a bad time. Can you give us a little bit of background about what what the text is depicting? So, I mean, the book of Lamentations, it's it's short. It's five chapters with five laments that are written in this really beautiful and sometimes difficult to understand poetry. Yeah. And it's written about the time that is right after the first temple has been destroyed and uh, many of the Israelites have been exiled to Babylon. Yeah. But there are some some Israelites who are who are still in Zion are sort of witnessing this destruction yeah. and suffering enormously. Um, so this is a significant trauma. It's something that's been yeah. going on for a long time. And this is so this is a traumatized community that is trying to deal with what has happened to it, both physically and emotionally, and as you're saying, and I think really importantly so, theologically. How do we make sense of our relationship with God in light of what has happened here? So today we're looking at Lamentations chapters 1 and 2. We've got two speaking voices in this text, which we'll try to sort of pull apart as we go. Mm-hmm. One speaker who we'll hear from first is sort of the narrator of these two chapters of Lamentations. And then we're going to have the second speaker is the daughter of Zion, who is a personification of the city of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So we'll hear a little bit, the narrator talking about Jerusalem, and then we hear Jerusalem embodied as a woman talking about herself. So we're going to start with chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. I'm reading from the NRSV. Jerusalem sinned grievously, so she has become a mockery. 
All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Her downfall was appalling, with none to comfort her. O Lord, look at my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Enemies have stretched out their hands over all her precious things. She has even seen the nations invade her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see how worthless I have become. It is so striking to me that this starts not with the sort of enormous suffering of the people, but sort of how they feel about their situation, like their the sense of shame, the sense of disgrace that this has happened. I mean, it starts with with how other people are looking at Jerusalem yeah. and how we and how we feel about that. You know, Jerusalem has become a mockery. They have seen her disgraced, and she can only my translation says she can only sigh and shrink back. Yeah, like with this sense of of shame. I think that's right. One of the things that's important in my mind in reading this text is to distinguish the two speakers who are here. And so this Mm -hmm. is almost entirely the narrator, but daughter Zion speaks a couple of times at the end of verse nine, she says, Oh Lord, look at my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. And then at the end of verse 11, she says, look, Oh Lord, and see how worthless I have become. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me, what you start with is somebody who never says anyway that he has actually experienced the trauma talking about what has happened to Jerusalem. And then you get Jerusalem talking about what she herself has experienced. So it's almost like a speaker who has not been traumatized talking about someone who has, and then a speaker who has survived trauma, like owning her own experience. That is such an important distinction. And I think I had sort of, I assumed that the narrator was like a citizen of Jerusalem and so was speaking really personally about it. But you are absolutely right. Like the narrator is, is observing as an outsider what is happening. And, you know, people sort of argue about what the narrator is exactly. But one thing that we didn't mention about Lamentations is that it's written in what's known as a kina meter, which is a dirge meter. So what's really happening is this, the narrator is singing a funeral dirge over Jerusalem. Yeah. So you could almost think of him like a reporter whose job it is Mm -hmm. to sort of tell other people, disinterested parties about what has happened to her. And so when you think, in my mind, when you think about the narrator that way, that difference between someone talking about someone else's destruction versus someone talking about their own comes really sharply into focus. When you think about like, why was Jerusalem destroyed? The narrator in the section that we're reading today starts out quite clearly uh, with Mm -hmm. his own interpretation. Jerusalem Mm -hmm. sinned grievously. I mean, it's a fairly straightforward explanation that he has offered. You have thoughts about it? I mean, I think my thought about it is there's so much sort of chaos that comes to be described in the description that unfolds of, of what is happening in Jerusalem. Yeah. And... I think in those situations of chaos, one of the most human impulses is to want to say, like, it's not chaotic. This makes sense. Mm, yeah. Right? Like, what has happened makes sense. It was a controlled thing. It was a acting consequence. Yes. You know, exactly like Kohelet was saying, that's not how this works. This book is saying, oh, yeah, this is how it works. Or at least this part of this book. Yeah, this speaker this in this book is saying, yes, act consequence. Yeah. Yep. So, I I see it as a way to 
to impose some kind of order upon a chaotic scene. So you could imagine that this speaker has the book of Deuteronomy in the back of their mind. If you Mm -hmm. do right, God will bless you. If you do wrong, God will punish you. She's being punished, therefore she must have done something wrong. Especially if you think the narrator is is an outsider to this, yeah. you know, is really just sort of like a reporter, then all the better for the narrator because he, you can sort of separate yourself from what's happening and be exactly. like, you sinned, so that happened to me, but I'm not in danger because I didn't do what you did. Now he moves, the, the narrator moves very quickly into really kind of personal language about uncleanness and nakedness mm-hmm. and shame. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you read that turn in the narrator's description? You know, this is not my favorite metaphor. Yeah. They're taking ritual impurity as Mm. a metaphor for moral impurity. Yeah. So they're saying uncleanness probably has something to do with like the idea of being unclean when you're menstruating. Jerusalem is being cast as a woman here, you know, and, and a woman who sleeps around. You know, all the worst. So it, it, it's like conflating all these different categories yeah. that are just like deep sources of shame in the biblical text and, and still for a lot of people. Like the, 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 the shame we humans have around our bodies knows no bounds. This language of enemies stretching out their hands over precious things and invading the sanctuary. Like these are really aggressive metaphors that can be read in the light of sexual violence yeah. enacted against Jerusalem by the invading armies. Yeah. And in my reading anyway, I mean, I'm a little hard on the narrator, so I, you can correct me, but I don't read him, like I read him a little bit like breathlessly describing how shocking her destruction is, but not in a way that is empathetic to her, but in a way that is kind of like, you know, I'm going to get the headlines or whatever. Yeah, it seems like this is the evening news. Like, this is the sort of everyone look at the destruction of this thing that was once thought to be so powerful and sacred and beautiful. Yeah. It's like a titillating nature to observing someone else's downfall and suffering. Yeah. And so then adding, like, sexual metaphor into that just makes it all the more, like, how how dramatic can we make this? I think that's right. Now, daughter... Daughter Zion then kind of lifts her voice and interrupts the speaker in in verse 9. So he's just said her downfall is appalling with none to comfort her. She says, oh, Lord, look at my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. And then he starts talking again. My translation is how the enemy jeers. Mm. And so that makes me wonder if the enemy in part is the narrator. Like jeering her. Oh, interesting. Which is not how I would have read it before, but yeah, it, it is really interesting to think about what is the relationship between Jerusalem, who is suffering, and this person who's looking at her while she's suffering and yeah, and narrating it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to sit with that. I think that's right, and it has so many implications for how we read this. I know. My gosh, Bobby, I think we could sit with this first little chunk of text for an hour. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> there's a sure. lot in here. There is. Now, her calling out to God in verse, so she, she speaks to God in verse 9, mm-hmm. and then she interrupts the speaker again in verse 11. Look, O Lord, and see how worthless I have become. And then she's going she's gonna to hold the floor from there, starting in verse 12. But it's yeah. interesting to me that the things that she cries out for, like the verbs are look, and then look and see. What she wants is someone to 
just to notice or to pay attention. And she's directed mm-hmm. those to God. Any thoughts about about that? I'm wondering again about the relationship between Jerusalem and the narrator. Yeah. Because in some ways, that is what the narrator's doing, is is looking and seeing and calling others to look and see. Yeah. So I think that sort of goes back to the question of, is there a different way that mm-hmm. we're supposed to look and see? And of course, Jerusalem's yeah. calling out to God to look and see, not yeah. everyone else. Yeah. Or is the narrator in some way helping her cause by calling attention to it? Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. And, you know, my sort of quick response, which probably doesn't do the question justice, is that she has interrupted him to cry out to God to look and see, which in my mind means that the way the narrator is looking and seeing is not a helpful way for her of looking and seeing. Otherwise, she would say, you know, people are people are paying attention to me, you know, so I feel comforted by this. But instead, she says, people are jeering me. So God, look and see what like God, look and see what's happened. Yeah. So what you were saying earlier about maybe he's he's piling on to the pain by the by the way that he is observing, Mm -hmm. I think is right. She then picks up and holds her voice for a little bit, beginning in verse 12. So this is daughter Zion speaking in 12 through 16. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire. It went deep into my bones. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They weigh on my neck, sapping my strength. The Lord handed me over to those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all my warriors in the midst of me. He proclaimed a time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my courage. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. I'm just, I'm so struck by the difference between the description of the suffering that we got from the narrator. Yeah. That was much more sort of like, you have fallen in your status and yes. you're a disgrace, you know? Yeah. And now there's this very real sort of image of of being a prisoner of war or image of being crushed, like yes. this kind of embodied suffering. Yeah. I mean, the way that I kind of have framed this is here we get that sort of the testimony of the survivor where previously we had the testimony of the observer and what seems important to call out for those you know two different yeah yes 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 now it's interesting that she has shifted so in in verses 9 and 11 she said lord look at my affliction look lord and see now she says hey all you passers-by look and see. So she has shifted from calling out to God to calling out to random people on the street or something like that. I mean, I wonder if, you know, sort of in the face of this kind of official, you know, news story that's being broadcast, that she's really, she's wanting a different kind of witness, witnessing from, from everyone else, everyone who's hearing the news story. Yeah. Like, look at what's actually happening. Don't just recite the funerary narrative, you know? The other thing that's happened here is, so she shifts to speaking to passersby, and then she starts talking about God. 
And so she's not calling out God to God's face right here, but she's saying, hey, y'all, let me tell you what God did to me. And then it's so interesting to me that like she is very clear, at least here, that the source of her suffering is ultimately God, the Lord in his anger inflicted. And then she describes the ways God inflicted her. And I think the image of the yoke of her offenses is so powerful. Like, again, sort of acknowledging this, you know, acting consequence model. But the image of a yoke, like having your neck locked in and you can't move and you have to pull the weight of your offenses wherever you go. Yeah. I don't know. That really, that gets me. Now, in verse 16, she says, a comforter is far from me, one to revive my courage. We also saw the narrator say something like that back in verse 9. Her downfall was appalling with none to comfort her. So there's this kind of repeated idea here that Jerusalem needs a comforter, but no one, it's not entirely clear at this moment, like, what a comforter would even look like or who like maybe we would expect that God would be the comforter, but God has been positioned here as the attacker. Yeah. The funeral singer is not, or the narrator is not offering any particular kind of comfort here. That's one of the pain points of being a monotheist, right? You can't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that the same God who is the punisher is also the God that you need to be the comforter. Yeah. Now in verse 17, then the narrator starts to speak again, I think just for one verse and says, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should become his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. And then daughter Zion begins to speak again. She says, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and behold my suffering. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while seeking food to revive their strength. Yeah, the way I read this is in verse 17, the narrator just goes straight back to what he was saying. He hasn't been moved really at all by what daughter Zion has said. He just goes right back into describing daughter Zion's current situation and the fact that God is punishing her. Yeah, and even going back to his like metaphor of of ritual uncleanness. Yeah, you know, she's a which, filthy thing, yeah. A filthy thing, yeah. Yeah. So then daughter Zion then picks up again in those two verses 18 and 19 and she starts out again the lord is right for i rebelled against his word and then she sort of says but and then she starts to describe her own suffering again what feels really striking to me is in verse 19 when she starts talking about her friends yes (laughs) and it just makes me think like you know there's suffering there's the thing that happened And then there's the way that people that you thought were your friends recoil from you when you're suffering. Yeah. You know, could it be they don't want to be mixed up in your situation because it would be dangerous or or it has a sense of uncleanness about it? Like you're going to get cooties if you're exposed (laughs) to that kind of suffering. Or maybe it makes them realize something about the fragility of their own situation. You know, but the fact that, I mean, this is, this is a true thing. When you're suffering, a lot of times friends back away because they, they feel they don't know what to do. Yeah, I think that's a really important line. And I think that's a good reading. The, a, another way of reading it is that her friends are not really her friends. 
Yeah. The ones she thought were her friends were actually playing her and they were never in it to support her. They deceived her. And so in some ways, the wrongdoing that she's been accused of, she, yes, yes, maybe she did it, but she was deceived into doing it. And now the people who deceived her into doing it are like nowhere to be found. So she's been manipulated and then abandoned by people who pretend. Oh, that's even worse. Her. I don't know which reading is worse, Bobby. Those are both depressing. Both <laughs> yeah. No, your reading is more depressing. You get the depressing award. For yeah, that, I but. usually, I often do in my, in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so then in the last three verses of this chapter, Daughter Zion speaks, begins to speak directly to God. Uh, so in, beginning in verse 20, See, O Lord, how distressed I am. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me, because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. They heard how I was groaning with no one to comfort me. All my enemies heard of my trouble, they are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced, and let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you, and deal with them as you have dealt with me, because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many. And my heart is faint. That's a pretty brutal prayer. Basically, in the end there, she's praying for her enemies to suffer like she has suffered. Yeah, I mean, she's saying this is cosmically unfair. Like, it's not necessarily unfair. She hasn't yet, I think, rejected the idea that God shouldn't be punishing her. Yeah. But she is saying, if you're going to do this to me, right, then you should be doing it to them, too. Yeah. Because they're they're not really any better. Yeah. The language that she uses again to describe her own experience in verse 20 is like it's so it's very personal in this different way that's different than the way the narrator talks about it. My stomach is churned, my heart is wrung, mm-hmm. the sword bereaves, the house is like death. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just interesting to me to pay attention to the different ways that this female personified survivor and this, I think, male narrator, the difference in the way they choose to describe the same situation. Yeah, and the way that the the narrator is using sort of symbolic language and honor and dishonor and these sort of like much more abstract categories. And when Jerusalem speaks, it's so grounded and embodied and it's just excruciating to read. Yeah. Okay, if we move then to chapter two, so we're going to skip about nine verses of the narrator's speech. He starts speaking again in chapter two, verse one, and speaks through verse nine. We're going to pick up in verse 10. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young girls of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is the bread and wine, as they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter Zion? For vast as the sea is your ruin, Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen oracles for you that are false and misleading. Okay, so here we get, I think, kind of a different tone from the narrator. It's a really different tone. Tell me who you think is speaking. I think that all of that 
is spoken by the narrator. Why do you ask it that way? Because it really is a different, like, there's a lot more empathy in yeah. in this than we saw in in chapter one. Yeah. You know, and now the narrator, if if this is the narrator saying, my my eyes are spent with tears, like I I am fe- I feel some of the pain that you are experiencing. Yes. So even if, like, I think I think you're exactly right about that. And even if you were to realign the speakers a little bit from what I suggested, you would still get the narrator very clearly saying in verse 13. What can I say for you to what compare you, O daughter Jerusalem? That is mm-hmm. self-evidently the narrator speaking to her mm-hmm. and wanting to be of comfort and saying, your, your hurt is so vast, it's like the sea. So no matter where you, want, where you end up placing verses 10 to 12, clearly the narrator, at least by verse 13, has made some kind of a, of a move. Yeah, some kind of a connection, like some yes. kind of real connection to the suffering of Jerusalem. Yes. Any thoughts about that shift in the narrator's perspective? Like how it happened? Yeah. I don't have a great answer for that. I mean, my the answer that comes to mind is is time, is spending time in the presence of the suffering. Yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think? Do you see like a particular... Uh, moment or episode that seems to shift it for you? You know, he was talking and then she interrupt, had to interrupt him twice in chapter one. And then he yeah. finally let her speak. And she spoke yeah. for half a chapter. And when he starts speaking again, his attitude is different. And yeah, so I think exactly- That's really beautifully said. Mm, mm-hmm. I think it's the time he spends and then listening to her voice and saying, instead of describing this thing through my preconceived theological lens- I'm going to sit and listen to her experience. Mm -hmm. And then he ends up being moved by it and starting to like retool his own theological categories. Yeah. And I love in, um, in verse 14 Mm. where, uh, the narrator is saying, is not saying this is not your fault. Yeah. You know, I mean, it still is. Yes. You still did the things that you did, whatever exposed your iniquity, but your seers prophesied to you delusion and folly. Yeah. Like your prophets failed you by being yes men. Yes. Right? Like no one told, no one corrected you when you were doing this. Yeah. And so, again, it doesn't totally overturn the idea that there was sin and consequence, but it's looking for places where you can, where you can empathize and soften a little bit on that. Yeah. I love this verse 13. So to what can I liken you that I may comfort you? For vast as the sea is your ruin, who can heal you or who can comfort you? You know, like that image of your, like I now understand that your suffering is as big as the ocean. Like it is inconceivable to me how much you have suffered. That seems like a real moment. Like he comes as close as he's ever going to come to kind of, being empathetic with her there. And with that comes this awareness that you can't, you don't have comfort to offer. Yeah. My teacher at um, Columbia Seminary, Kathleen O'Connor, talked about this as a, she calls it a theology of witness, that daughter Zion had been asking for someone to see her and take notice of her and that that would be of comfort to her. And here, what he does, the narrator does, is he sees her And he says, 
I can't explain your suffering or make it any better. And that that in itself is an act of comfort that she has finally, someone has finally acknowledged the depth of her suffering and not tried to fix it and not tried to confine it and not try to explain it. And that's maybe, that may not be much, but in her, in O'Connor's reading, that's the beginning of what, of what needs to happen is just someone acknowledging that the suffering is real suffering. So he continues speaking then in verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies open their mouths against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have devoured her. Ah, this is the day we have longed for. At last we have seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his threat as he ordained long ago. He has demolished without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Cry aloud to the Lord, O wall of daughter Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. So what do you make of what the narrator has said to her here? Well, I mean, I think the first thing that stands out to me is how, you know, we have these sort of broad strokes, like this big symbolic narrative of suffering. And then we got into the much more personal, you know, on the ground, what it looks like. And then the narrator becomes more sympathetic to that. But when the narrator goes back and describes how all the other people are sort of walking by and deriding Jerusalem, it goes way back up to that level of sort of high level narratives, right? Mm -hmm. Of, you know, we've ruined her, ha ha. And again, like, now Jerusalem is just back to being the symbol of this beautiful city that, you know, maybe, uh, maybe everyone else was jealous of, or, you know, had all this power that seemed unfair that she had that power and just sort of enjoy the schadenfreude of enjoying someone else's downfall. But again, that is totally detached from, from any kind of empathy for the experience uh, that, that Jerusalem is having. You know, in my reading, the narrator here is still identifying with daughter Zion and is describing Mm -hmm. what the enemies are doing, but he's no longer identifying with them. Is that how? Yeah. Yeah. That's how I read it. Yeah. It's more just like a reminder that like both, both levels of understanding are still happening and are both out there in the world. It's just the narrator has, flipped his own perspective. So the narrator then in those last two verses that we read 18 and 19, where he, so he describes that again, but then what he, what he's doing is encouraging daughter Zion to cry out even louder. Yeah. To me, that is such an interesting move to say, yeah, God has not treated you fairly. So get up on the wall and shout, shout, shout. Yeah. Pour your heart out like water. Mm Mm-hmm. I at least don't read in here any explicit cry out so that something will happen. There's yeah. not a so that. Yeah. It's just cry out because what else? Because. Just, yeah. you know? I mean, I, I don't know. I guess there's sort of an implicit, maybe there's an implicit so that. I don't know. Well, I think that's a really interesting insight that, you know, if you read it the way you were starting to read it there, then the point is like, you must speak your truth before the most powerful being in the universe. 
-hmm. even if you're not sure like what the outcome is or whether God will respond, like you need to get up on that wall and, and keep on shouting. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. So in verse 20, she does exactly that. And so in 20 to 22, what she says is, Look, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have born? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? The young and the old are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. In the day of your anger, you have killed them, slaughtering without mercy. You invited my enemies from all around as if for a day of festival. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy has destroyed. So that's the end of chapter two. And it's also the last words that daughter Zion speaks in the book of Lamentations. So th- what, do you, what do you do with that, with that prayer? Prayer, uh, as a lament. I don't, know what, I don't know what to call that. It is, it is yeah. for most of it anyway, a direct address of God. Like she is speaking to the face of God now, not speaking about God. Yeah, and really trying to call God's attention to the specifics of the suffering and the ways in which, I mean, this image of women eating their own babies. Yeah. Everything is so backwards. Like every ordering principle that we know of what is essentially good and right has been flipped over and trying to get God to see that sort of in the same way that she was trying to get the narrator to see past this sort of wooden narrative that he had initially. She is trying to get God to see past this. Okay, here's the operating procedure for when Jerusalem misbehaves. Yeah, I know. I think that's exactly right. And that that question, should women eat their offspring? Like the answer to that is no. (laughs) (laughs) They should not. To be clear. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, what, what the way I read her, yeah, is her saying, look, God, maybe I deserve to be punished. Like, I don't think she's actually necessarily rejected that basic idea. But even if I deserve to be punished, nobody deserves this. Like, right. what on earth are you doing that you have created a situation where women are considering whether they should eat their children so they can stay alive? Like, right. nobody deserves that. You didn't think this whole thing through when you wrote your procedures. Yeah. And, and here God is angry in this kind of interesting way. Yes. In the day of your anger, you have killed them, slaughtering without mercy. Yep. And so God has become so enraged that God has overpunished. Mm-hmm. And she's in my reading anyway, she's calling to God, she's calling God on the carpet for that. Even if you're a God who's going to follow the Deuteronomic covenant, you should have had more compassion. You than really this. went above and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that is a really bold move for her to say Like, you are not being a very good God right now, are you? It is interesting to think about a city or a person or a community experiencing so much suffering that they will make this kind of, like, bold, audacious, you know, potentially dangerous statement to the powers that be. Yeah. You know, and say, like, I really, I don't, this is all I have to, you know, like, I, yes, it is risky to speak this kind of truth to this kind of power, but there comes a point where there's nothing else to do. 
And then in those last couple lines there, she turns away from God and starts speaking about God again. On the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. And so she has engaged God with this kind of final like accusation, basically. And then has, in, in my mind anyway, has seemed to kind of like to break herself away from God in some kind of way. Like, I've said what I had to say, but I don't really think you're going to fix anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she never really makes any kind of turn toward hope or turn toward God like we were talking about earlier. She just kind of ends up saying God is really angry and there's no hope for the future. Yeah. I mean, there is no future. She is entirely in the present moment. Yeah. So we've gestured a couple of times along the way toward ways this might intersect with our own moment. Yeah. But where would you take this in thinking about our own time and communities of faith in response to it? I mean, I think there, are, as you said, there are so many, so many directions that would be fruitful to take this. What is really speaking to me right now is somewhere between this sort of idea of the power of witness mm-hmm. and like seeing seeing the suffering other of other people mm. and recognizing that that's really hard to do because when you see the suffering of other people, it calls into question your own sense of being a powerful being in the world, yeah. right? Because there there might not be anything you can really do. And it, 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 it raises for me questions, like these big questions about the fragility of human dignity. Yes. You know, that 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 is my fragility too it's it's much easier sometimes to look away than to sit with what does it really mean that people can be made to suffer in this way what does it mean for for human like what does it mean to be a human when humans do this do these things to each other yeah i feel like that was a really abstract way of trying to get at something what do you what do you think bobby so to me there's two kinds of things that really resonate with me And they're related to these two characters, the one who has experienced the trauma and the one who seems to be kind of adjacent to the trauma. For daughter Zion herself, to me, what this text lifts up is the importance of speaking one's truth and of protesting, like get up on the wall and say what is true and say it in the face of power, in this case, God, who may not be sympathetic to you. And even if you don't have clear policy goals in mind, what matters is that you speak what is true. You know, she speaks angrily. She calls God to account for not having compassion, for only being angry. She doesn't grovel at the end to say, Mm -hmm. you know, like, please, you know, I know that you did all this terrible stuff, but now I trust that you're going to be better. She just says, you are angry with me and I'm angry with you. And I don't see how we can move forward from here. And Lamentations doesn't try to adjust that or correct that or do anything with that. It just, like, it lets that be what it is. And I think that's really important. Walter Brueggemann has this essay that he wrote a long time ago called The Costly Loss of Lament, where he talks about people being able to speak truth before God in theological contexts affects Mm -hmm. the way we are able or not able to speak truth before temporal powers in political contexts. And so if we can say this to God, then we ought to be able to speak to the governor or to the president or to whomever it is. And this gives us a model for for being in the street and saying what is true and for being angry and for not being able to see a, a way forward and not to be trying to rush. You know, hopefully there is a way forward, 
But this yeah. text doesn't have that in mind. Yeah. The other thing that's there for me is the funeral singer who I read as having started out kind of thinking he understood everything and, and describing someone else's traumatic experience from his own theological perspective and saying like, I get it. Like, you know, let me talk about it. Maybe even let me enjoy a little bit what's happening. And he moves in that second chapter to listening, to experiencing empathy, to identifying mm-hmm. like your pain is now my pain. Your people are my people. Your tears are my tears. Mm-hmm. And just being able to say that to her, your pain is overwhelming to me. And I don't know what to say about that. And the potential that, you know, as Kathleen O'Connor raises, that the potential that that in itself has some healing power. But I mean, I think I, it has, it, it doesn't solve any problems, but I think it, it does have healing power. It does. You know, just the recognition that what, What's happening for you is real. Yeah. This is real. You're not crazy. I see it now. Yeah. You know, I see exactly it. exactly right. And so I can sort of a little bit hold it with you. Yeah, exactly. And then the thing that I really love about it is that where the, where the funeral singer ends up or the narrator ends up is calling on daughter Zion to speak her truth even more. So there's a danger yeah. that the narrator could displace her and sort of say like, oh, now I understand your pain. Like, let me, let me wax eloquently about it. Now I'm about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what he does is say, oh, your pain is overwhelming. You need to shout that even louder. And then he stops talking. And I think there's something really important about that. I'd want to sit with this text longer. It's such an important text for this moment. And I'm glad we get to spend another week in Lamentations. So next week we'll be in Lamentations 3, where we have a very different kind of speaker. And so then we'll be in chapter five a little bit where we see also the community's response. And we're going to talk about like how and is it possible? Like, how do you hold all these different voices? How does Lamentations hold different voices together? Yeah. And, and how do we hold, how different, do we hold voices? different voices together? Yeah. All right, Amy, I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too. I, I learned a lot from the next it. one. Me too. All right. See you next week. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bible Worm. Next week, we continue our discussion of Lamentations, looking at the voice of the strong man in Lamentations 3 and the communal response in chapter 5. We hope you'll join us. Until then, keep on digging.